a Singular Discoveries podcast. In the previous episode of Singular Discoveries, the circumstance of a female being now confined within the walls of the Maryland penitentiary for the offense of horse stealing committed while she was in the garb of a man brings to my mind a circumstance related to me which may throw some light upon the history of the extraordinary individual calling herself George Wilson. This female is certainly a very extraordinary individual, but she is silent in almost every particular in relation to herself. This was the last he heard of his daughter, and though several years have elapsed since then, he still continues his search of her. From Singular Discoveries, this is The Female Horse Thief, Part 2. In October 1834, a young Englishwoman was arrested on a steamboat at Perth Amboy, New Jersey. The arrest was reported in the New Brunswick Times. A young English girl, about 18 years of age, dressed in men's apparel and giving her name as Charles Stewart, was arrested a few days since on board the steamboat Napoleon, charged with stealing a pair of horses at Kingston, south of New Brunswick, and committed to jail. She came through the city very deliberately, riding one of the horses on Cavaliero. On December 20th, a day of heavy snow, this woman who had initially given her name as Charles Stewart was tried at the Court of Quarter Sessions in New Brunswick under the name Catherine Dingwall. Dingwall was represented pro bono by Joseph Warren Scott, a respected army colonel and member of the bar. The courthouse was filled with anxious speculators. Joseph Warren Scott Esquire, with his usual philanthropy, volunteered his services on behalf of the unfortunate stranger and distinguished himself with extraordinary ability and with such effect as to draw tears from the audience. The story of this poor girl is pathetic and singularly romantic. It was also somewhat familiar. Act 3. Catherine Dingwall. According to Scott, Dingwall was from Yorkshire, where she had formed an attachment with a young man who worked for her father. The young man was named Charles Stewart, not Jack Wilson, and it was his name Dingwall had used as an alias. Stewart, the young man, was sent to America by the disapproving father, and the distraught Dingwall set off after him. Dingwall disguised herself in male attire and travelled to Liverpool, where she, quote, engaged as a common sailor and sailed in search of her lover. There was no suggestion she had accidentally sailed for Malta or been shipwrecked. Dingwall landed in New York and scoured the streets for Stuart before moving on to New Jersey. In Kingston, between New Brunswick and Princeton, she stopped for a night in a barn. Wearied, broken-hearted, dejected and in a foreign land, the horrible idea of suicide presented itself as the only end of her sufferings. But from this dreadful and melancholic alternative, she was diverted by circumstances altogether providential. It was the sight of two horses in a field by the barn that caused Dingwall to consider a plan that would set her on her path to notoriety. She stole the two horses and rode one to New Brunswick, with the other following behind. Detectives tracked her to Perth Amboy and apprehended her on board the steamship Napoleon, bound for New York. According to Scott, Dingwall knew horse-stealing was punishable by death back in England under the Bloody Code, 
and she was prepared to accept that fate as, quote, an end to her sufferings and sorrows. She insisted on pleading guilty and refused to be persuaded otherwise, but Scott, as her counsel, was permitted to enter a plea of not guilty on her behalf. No one appeared against her, such was the sympathy excited in her case, and so strong was the belief that the act she committed was one of frenzy and not of deliberate intention. The story proves that she is a noble and warm-hearted girl, and that she deserves the further protection of our citizens. It was decided that she should be allowed to return home to her father. Catherine Dingwall was acquitted. What happened over the next few months is unclear, but Dingwall did not go home. According to newspaper reports, she went to Boston, where she stole a horse while dressed as a man, and then changed into a woman's clothing to avoid detection. Reports out of Lowell, Massachusetts, around 20 miles north of Boston, described a, quote, modest-looking female horse thief who stole a horse and chaise and fled up through Vermont toward Canada before disappearing. We incline to the opinion that this female horse thief will turn out to be a gentleman in petticoats. That was the naive opinion of one newspaper. What is certain is, by the summer of 1835, the female horse thief had returned to New York. A record of her return can be found in reports from the New York Court of Sessions. On July 17, 1835, a genteel-looking young person named Charles Stewart, wearing a blue jacket and trousers, was charged with stealing a horse worth $150 from a Mr. Cope of Hurlgate in Queens. The prisoner was found guilty. However, before sentencing, defence attorney Thomas Brady made a startling announcement. The case was just on the eve of being disposed of, when the whole court was thrown into the greatest astonishment by the prisoner's counsel, Mr. Brady, getting up and submitting to the court that the verdict be set aside as the prisoner, Charles Stewart, was a female. The greatest excitement prevailed at this announcement, and the most intense feeling was exerted in the audience to obtain a sight of the prisoner. She had a very fair complexion and did not seem at all disconcerted at the gaze of the audience. For the past six months, the court heard, the prisoner had worked as a horse-drawn cab driver in City Hall Park, without the least suspicion entertained of her being other than of the masculine gender. She had also worked on several ships and at a farm, during the whole time of which she had passed as a man. The woman horse thief, again. This was the headline in the New Brunswick Times. According to the paper, this was the same damsel who had stolen two horses from Kingston in the previous year, Catherine Dingwall. But unlike in New Brunswick, the New York court showed little sympathy. After, quote, animadverting on the impropriety of her conduct, the judge declared the guilty party's sex was a matter of indifference and sentenced her to two years in the New York State Prison at Sing Sing. Sing Sing, a then newly built stone block prison at Ossining on the Hudson River's east bank, was a model institution for the controversial Auburn penal system, which required prisoners to be kept in solitary confinement at night and to remain silent during the day while occupied with hard labour. The prison's 1,000 low-ceiling cells were so small that prisoners could lie on the floor and touch all four walls with their head, toes and outstretched fingers. During her first few days in Sing Sing, further confusion arose regarding the prisoner's identity. According to the New York court reports, she was tried as Charles Stewart and didn't reveal her real name. During the New Brunswick trial, Catherine Dingwall's attorney stated that she was from Yorkshire, England, which matched other reports. But multiple reports from the New York trial said she was from Scotland, not England. According to one report, 
the prisoner stated after her conviction that she was from the Scottish Highlands. The New York State Archives does not hold inmate records for Sing Sing prior to 1860, and it's not possible to confirm which name the prisoner was held under or whether she served her full sentence. According to newspaper reports, she refused to do any labour in Sing Sing and, as in Maryland, was punished with the lash. The punishments increased in severity until a prison physician felt the need to intervene. The papers said she spent 15 months in solitary confinement. If she did serve her full sentence, she would have been released in the summer of 1837. After her release from Sing Sing, newspapers said the female horse thief demanded the return of her male clothing and found work as a labourer, although the papers also suggested that, when dressed in her proper clothing, she had, quote, generally been the inmate of a brothel. Then in the months leading up to February 1838, she made her way from New York to Baltimore. There are no known reports of female horse thieves during this period, although horse theft remained a popular news topic. In September 1837, the Baltimore Sun reported that a male horse thief was shot dead while attempting to escape with a steed belonging to a Mr. Creamer. In October, the same paper noted the capture and imprisonment of the suitably named John Stallions, quote, a horse thief, of course. Then, in February 1838, the Sun reported the arrival in Baltimore and the arrest and imprisonment of the female horse thief known as George Wilson, which is where this horse-drawn tale began. After a little over 15 weeks in the Maryland penitentiary, on June 20th, 1838, George Wilson was pardoned by the Maryland executive. After her release, an English lady of high standing paid for her passage on a ship back to England and sent her $20 for sea stores and $30 for clothing. The prisoner accepted the money but refused to board the ship and disappeared. The son was mystified. Whether she is gone, no one can tell. Her conduct at times gave reason to suppose she was insane. That, however, might have been the effects of the entire loss of the finest feelings of her sex and her abandonment of modesty of thought and action. But be she who she may, she is an extraordinary being and seems determined to set all law and order at defiance. Her life and adventures would be a curiosity and we hope will be given to the world before long. That hope would soon be realized. Eleven months later, in May 1839, an inmate of the Madison County Jail in Kentucky published a slender autobiographical pamphlet called The Female Prisoner. The title page featured an etching of a rather angelic-looking figure bound at the wrists with rope. Its introductory text described a young woman who had been, quote, deservedly esteemed for her exemplary behaviour, but for the past three years, friendless and unprotected, had been unhappily addicted to criminal propensity more singular and surprising in nature for one of her sex than can be found on record. According to the pamphlet, the author was an infamous female horse thief who was serving a two-year sentence in Kentucky. She was aware of sensationalist newspaper coverage of her story, presented under various aliases, and now wanted to set the record straight. Since I have been doomed to experience nearly one year's confinement within the gloomy and damp walls of a prison... I feel no longer unwilling to disclose to the world my real name, which is that of Josephine Amelia Perkins. Act 4. Josephine Perkins. 
Josephine Perkins's story was similar to that of George Wilson, Charlotte Bruce and Catherine Dingwall, with several distinct differences. According to Perkins, she was born in 1818 in the English county of Devonshire, not Yorkshire, and her lover was a ship's purser, a low-ranking naval officer, not a stable boy. The couple were separated when the unnamed officer received unexpected orders to sail for the British Navy's North American station at Halifax in Nova Scotia, Canada. It appeared certain that we were, in a very short period, to be separated, and probably forever. So she formulated a plan. I would, in as secret manner as possible, possess myself of one of my father's fleetest and best horses, and endeavour to meet the young man at Portsmouth on the day on which he was to embark, and accompany him, disguised as a male in the character of a volunteer, until our arrival at the port of destination, where, without any to forbid the bans, we could be united in marriage. This indeed would prove a bold and somewhat hazardous adventure, but however hazardous, it was the only one that could be adopted to prevent what would probably prove a final separation. On the morning of her elopement, Perkins woke before daybreak, hurried to the stable, saddled and bridled her chosen horse, then galloped more than a hundred miles to Portsmouth. But she was pursued by her father, who was determined to ruin her plan. Here then was a scene that would have well afforded a subject for the pencil of an artist, a race between a father and daughter. Thanks to her noble and faithful horse, Perkins won the race, but arrived just as her lover's ship, its sails unfurled, was cruising clear of the harbour. This was a disappointment I had not dreamed of, much less anticipated, and by which I could not but view my fondest hopes of future happiness, completely and forever blasted. Two days later, Perkins set out for Canada on a merchant vessel that was wrecked in a violent storm and had to be abandoned. Perkins escaped in a lifeboat, which drifted for a day and a night before being spotted off Cape Lookout, North Carolina, several hundred miles south of her intended destination. I now found myself both friendless and penniless in a foreign land of which I had but little geographical knowledge. Being destitute of any means to support myself, and being unused to labour and ashamed to beg, as my only alternative to prevent misery and starvation, I came to the wicked resolution that I would attempt a repetition of the crime of which I had once been guilty. Perkins admitted to stealing two horses, and said she was twice apprehended and brought to court. On the first occasion, the judge said the prosecution of a female horse thief would be, quote, both novel and without a precedent, and discharged her with a pardon. On the second occasion, Perkins' court-appointed counsel gave a defence of insanity, arguing the improbability of any woman who would steal a horse being, quote, in a proper state of mind. The jury acquitted Perkins without deliberation. Having now become so notorious as a female horse thief, so denominated in several newspapers, I felt determined to seek a retreat beyond the circulation of such reports in the far west. But she only got as far as Kentucky and Madison County, where, driven to extremities by poverty and want, she stole another horse and was this time sentenced to two years in the county jail. There, stuck in a solitary cell on a straw bunk with curious locals gazing at her through the iron bars on the window, she began to write her pamphlet. Appended to her story was a seven-page address to parents and children that denounced criminal behaviour and called on children to obey their parents and on parents to allow children to follow their, quote, reasonable desires. The female horse thief was repentant. When news of Josephine Perkins reached Baltimore in February 1840, the Baltimore Sun published a column titled At Her Old Tricks. 
the paper was convinced that Perkins was the same female horse thief who had been incarcerated in the Maryland Penitentiary in Sing Sing. There is little doubt this is the same individual, and we have long been expecting to hear of her exploits. It seemed that Perkins had taken ownership of her story. For the first time, the tale was being told from the horse thief's mouth. However, while she admitted to being the notorious felon who had so excited the penny papers, Perkins made no mention in her account of New Jersey, New York or Baltimore, where the thief had verifiably been detained. Either Josephine Perkins was a separate individual, or her story was a lie. It was soon admitted that the latter was the truth. In 1842, Josephine Perkins issued a second pamphlet, this one titled A Demon in Female Apparel, and subtitled Narrative of the Notorious Female Horse Thief. Her previous account, she admitted, had been, quote, a tissue of falsehoods written with no other view than to excite the pity of the most sympathising of my own sex. The details of her early life, she claimed, were strictly correct, as was her real name. It was true she had met a young naval officer and had stolen her father's horse. She had then raced to Liverpool, not Portsmouth, where she found passage to America. After many hairbreadth escapes, although not specifically a shipwreck, she found herself in North Carolina. She stole three horses and faced three trials and was in turn discharged, then acquitted, then sentenced to two years in Madison County Jail. Perkins was visited at the jail by several, respectable and influential, local women who offered sympathy and Bible passages. She set out to convince them that she was an only child from a decent family who had been driven to theft by poverty and want. So she wrote her first pamphlet, and a petition for her freedom began to be circulated. In due time, the petition was presented to the state authorities and Perkins was released. Although she was free, Perkins was destitute and claimed to find it impossible to find honest work. I now began to view myself in no better condition than a public outlaw, and suspected by all whom I should happen to meet, and wherever I should sojourn, as no other than the infamous character, the notorious female horse thief, and hence came to the conclusion that I might as well enjoy the game as bear the name. Perkins galloped across Kentucky, unable to resist the temptation of, quote, at least borrowing for an unlimited time horse after horse. She was apprehended and jailed in Washington County and bailed out by a wealthy young man who she had duped into being her fiancé. She stole another horse and rode toward the Ohio River, resting along the way at the home of a kindly family to whom she spun a sob story, in which she said, I need not inform the reader there was not a single word of truth. In the morning she stole the contents of the father's pocketbook. The father called for the assistance of a law enforcement officer who set off in pursuit. At 4pm that afternoon, around two miles from the Ohio River, the officer caught up with Perkins and grabbed her horse's bridle. Perkins produced a pistol from her bosom and, quote, made a true and effectual aim for his head. Fortunately, her shot missed. As soon as the daring attempt was made upon the life of the officer, I was forced to dismount and taken into custody. Perkins was charged with stealing the horse and $150 in banknotes from the pocketbook, plus various thefts and high-handed misdemeanours, and an unlawful and outrageous attempt made with a deadly weapon upon the life of an officer. After what she regarded as a mere form of a trial, she was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to solitary imprisonment in the Kentucky State Penitentiary at Frankfurt for the term of her natural life. Thus, kind reader, at the youthful age of but 28, 
my wild career attended oft by the commission of foul and unlawful deeds, is thus brought to a close, and I am doomed to be shut out from all society and the world, from henceforth to my dying day. It was a confusing mea culpa. Many of its new details raised more questions than answers. Was she born in 1818, as stated in the first pamphlet, or about 1814, as suggested in the second? Did she sail to America from Liverpool or Portsmouth, a difference on horseback of more than 200 miles? Was she shipwrecked or not? And why was there still no mention of New Jersey, New York or Baltimore? Such discrepancies suggested the second pamphlet might also be a tissue of falsehoods, and the author might not be who she claimed. There is no record of Josephine Perkins, or any of the female horse thief's known aliases, in the register of prisoners from the state penitentiary at Frankfurt, held at the Kentucky Department for Libraries and Archives. Nor can she be found in the order books for the Madison County Jail. There are multiple reports of horse thieves in the Kentucky newspaper archives from the period, but none of them are identified as women. Both pamphlets were published in New York rather than Kentucky. The second was published by a bookbinder named Willis Root, who was later implicated in the 1845 case of the Mackenzie pamphlet, a controversial publication that included dubiously acquired private papers relating to US President Martin Van Buren. Root bound and sold the Mackenzie pamphlet under a false name. Was a similar deception involved in the publication of the Perkins pamphlets? Or were they knowingly fictional narratives that were wrongly accepted as fact? Whatever the truth, Josephine Amelia Perkins would enter the annals of American history as the country's first female horse thief. Her first disowned pamphlet was serialised in newspapers through the 1850s. In 1921, more than a century after Perkins's claimed year of birth, a widely syndicated New York Herald article told her story in a eulogy for the dying art of horse-stealing. In a 1929 edition of Vanity Fair, true crime author Edmund Pearson wrote a feature about Perkins that regurgitated her pamphlets without scrutiny. A year later, the Baltimore Sun called Perkins the first member of her sex to take up horse-stealing and said her pamphlets had a tremendous circulation. But the paper failed to make any connection to the Baltimore exploits of George Wilson. Perkins has been recorded as America's first female horse thief in best-selling almanacs and encyclopedias, and her pamphlets have been cited in serious academic works. And, of course, Perkins has a Wikipedia page calling her the first woman convicted of horse-stealing, with the key reference sources being her own pamphlets. Josephine Perkins became famous while George Wilson remained unknown. The legend of the female horse thief obscured her real story. Maybe that worked to her benefit. Perhaps while the fictional horse thief was languishing in a jail cell, the real thief rode off into the sunset. Maybe she escaped into her own myth. If the female horse thief was never in Kentucky, then her whereabouts following her release from the Maryland Penitentiary in 1838 are unknown. If she was not Josephine Perkins, then her real identity remains similarly unclear. She had used so many aliases and been the subject of so many stories that no one but herself could say who she really was. Maybe she did serve a life sentence in some miserable jail cell somewhere in America for the crimes described in the Perkins pamphlets. Or perhaps she was free to ride the horse trails and highways and continue her search for her exiled lover. Trawls of two-century-old records and registers reveal many tantalising threads, none of which, when pulled, can reveal definitive identification of the female horse thief. 
and lignin-yellowed newspaper archives provide a paper trail of female horse thieves, any or none of whom could be the individual who once called herself George Wilson. Was she the very coarse female tobacco chewer who was arrested for horse stealing at Charles, Missouri in 1841? Or the young lady who stole a horse and wagon and ran over a boy, fortunately not killing him, at Dutch Kills, Long Island City in 1845? What about the woman who escaped from custody having stolen a horse, buggy and harness from Mr. Benjamin Buffington in Elizabethville, Pennsylvania in 1850? How did her story or any of their stories end? Here is one possibility. In 1858, a female horse thief in men's clothing was apprehended near Kingston, this time not Kingston in New Jersey, but Kingston in Ontario, Canada. As she was being taken into custody, she put a handkerchief to her face. Her captors believed she was hiding her emotions, but she was actually inhaling a mixture of strychnine and chloroform. She was instantly seized with spasms. A doctor was called, but by the time he arrived, she was dead. Another possible ending can be found hidden in the cursive script ledgers of the Census of Canada, with Canada thought to be the destination of the horse thief's banished lover. Recorded in 1881, in the listings for the St. Lawrence Ward in downtown Toronto, is an elderly woman named Catherine Stewart. She lives with an Englishman, presumed to be her husband, named Charles Stewart. Charles is a shoemaker. He might once have been a stable boy. Remember, Catherine Dingwall used the name of her lover Charles Stewart as a pseudonym. Is it possible this Catherine Stewart might once have been a horse thief? If so, she found what she was searching for, her exiled lover and her freedom. In the movie version of this story, a satisfying plotline would draw from Charlotte Bruce's departure on a romantic quest from England, traced through Catherine Dingwall's equine crime spree in New York and New Jersey, jump forward to George Wilson's apprehension and brutal punishment in Baltimore, rattle through Josephine Perkins's gun-toting escapades and comeuppance in Kentucky, and end with Catherine Stewart finding her lover in Canada. But perhaps the incomplete truth we can piece together is more intriguing than the fictional whole we cannot. A tale so full of falsehoods and contradictions cannot have such a clear-cut ending. A woman who went to such lengths to disguise her identity cannot have such a readily discoverable fate. Much of her tale was told by unreliable third parties, but as a whole it became a cloak that caused or allowed its wearer to conceal herself and disappear into the shadows of confusion. The second Perkins pamphlet is an untrustworthy narrative, but it contains a statement that can serve as a caveat for the female horse thief's entire story. It was my greatest object to regain my liberty, and I was obliged to do it, in some instances, at the expense of the truth. In the next episode of Singular Discoveries, another true story from the forgotten corners of history. To receive new episodes for free, just follow Singular Discoveries on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to binge listen the entire season ad-free right now, just go to singulardiscoveries.com. The Female Horse Thief was written and produced by Paul Brown based on his ebook of the same name. You can find more of his writing at stuffbypaulbrown.com. Singulardiscoveries.com. <laughs>